Hello everyone, I am Ruben. I am the project steward of Firo. Um, you know, because we are supposed to be decentralized, there's no CEO or stuff like that. Uh, but basically we run, I, I run like, you know, the day-to-day -day runnings of the project. Uh, and today we're going to kind of run through how we started with Zcoin, which was, I guess, the first implementation of Zerocoin. And we messed up really badly. <laughs> Uh, and I wanted to show and share how we moved from what was probably kind of like a naive ambition to try to employ, implement these very complex privacy protocols to what we have uh, developed today. And we've gone through quite a few privacy protocols and learned uh, in many times the hard way. So I'm not technical, but uh, I hope to share the story for that. <laughs> Uh, so a bit about me, you know, I am uh, from Malaysia. I actually don't come from a technical background. I was a lawyer for 10 years and just kind of like got into crypto in 2013 because I ran a VPN service and they were like cutting me off from all these uh, privacy payment processors. You know, we were seen as doing something illegal, kind of like in the same position privacy coins are today. And, you know, crypto seemed to be offering this kind of like self-sovereignty. I'm able to accept uncensorable payments. And that's kind of how I got into crypto. Uh, I didn't actually start in Firo as like a co-founder, even though sometimes I'm listed as one. Uh, I kind of came in like one month later, helping out here and there, and just kind of evolved into the role. So take note, I may make some mistakes on the technical thing because, you know, I am uh, legally trained, not, not cryptographically trained. So, you know, Zcoin or Firo, Firo is uh, the rebrand of Zcoins that steal the same chain. Uh, we actually main that in September 2016. And back then, it was basically just two people. Uh, one guy called Parmin Insom, uh, who has, you know, a computer science degree and was also doing his uh, master's at John Hopkins University under Matthew Green. Uh, and the other guy was Gary Le. He was a Teal Fellow. Uh, and we can talk about it later, but basically he ran away with all seed money. <laughs> uh, so that wasn't a really good start. Basically just two people, you know, Parmin was supposed to take care of all the programming and stuff like that. And his master's paper was actually about uh, a practical implementation of zero coin in the real world as there were some open issues that needed to be solved. Uh, so, you know, back then, you know, in 2016, actually, like the whole idea, I think the zero coin paper was in 2014. So like work was kind of done over the, like over two years by one developer. And finally we launched in 2016. And, you know, back then, like altcoins, they weren't really doing very much. It was just like change the block time, change the mining algorithm and stuff like that. So this was kind of like the, you know, we were trying to do something different to implement like real privacy uh, for, for like, you know, like altcoins, right? And we actually started as a CPU mining focus, uh, but we kind of got raped by you don't know whether botnets or rented hash rate and stuff like that. And uh, we pivoted away and now uh, like it's a kind of a hybrid consensus mechanism, which we'll talk about later. So what, what is zero coin, right? Zero coin is not the same as zero cash, which is used in Zcash. Uh, I guess, you know, I know like it's a controversial, what do you mean by ZKP approach? 
But the idea that back then, you know, zero coin was this uh, thing where you could basically destroy coins or put this into like some black hole. And then later on, you could produce a ZKP that you did in the burn, burn these uh, coins. And that allows you to redeem brand new coins with, well, looks like no previous transaction history. That's kind of like a layman way to explain it. And uh, it was like, it was originally actually meant to be a proposal for Bitcoin. And, uh, but it had a lot of like pushback, you know, this was like too new, this was too risky, which, which we find out that it actually is. And um, it was very clear that Zerocoin was not going to be implemented in Bitcoin. And that's why we, you know, we kind of took it and decided to implement it in Zcoin. So I guess like, you know, back then when Zerocoin first came about, there were, I think there were only like maybe two main privacy protocol systems, like kind of one which was like CoinJoin and the other one which was Ring Signatures. And I don't think back then amounts were hidden yet, correct me if I'm wrong. So basically, you know, Zerocoin was this quite a, like a very promising a new privacy protocol. And unlike in Ring Signatures, you know, where you're mixing with eight or 16 or whatnot, uh, Zerocoin actually offered a global anonymity set, or at least within the fixed denominations. So what that means is that, you know, no matter how many commitments you, you go in, uh, it actually encompasses everyone who has decided to burn their coins into the zero coin uh, protocol. Uh, so it's also, you know, uses like, you know, standard RSA cryptography, you know, uh, there's no like fancy cryptographic assumptions. There's no like, you know, moon math as they say. And I guess the idea behind zero coin, which I think maybe it's kind of misguided. We thought that, you know, zero coin offered more an auditable, more auditable supply than something like zero cash, which was able to, you know, fully hide the amounts and had this whole shielded layer. Zero coin was designed, remember, with Bitcoin in mind. So there was no separate addressing system. And what it allowed was basically burn and redeem back into the Bitcoin transparent addresses. But, you know, zero coin had a lot of, uh, you know, drawbacks, right? I think when Zerocoin was first like come out, it was like 50 kilobytes per proof, which was like ridiculously large. Uh, you know, they weren't, we, we then, you know, did, I think it was, uh, there was like revised papers that actually reduced this to 25 kilobytes, but even then it's like really, really large, right? Uh, it also had very, very long verification times. So what, what is verify, right? So in the ZKP, you know, you, there's a prover, that means you create, that means, you know, I'm proving something. And then the verification is that when you're checking, like, you know, you're checking whether this ZKP is saying, is doing, is proving what it says it is, right? So when you're launching like a blockchain network, obviously verification times are really important because if you, if your verification time is very long, uh, you know, it's very hard to scale because your nodes have to be really, really powerful to process all this verification or transactions. And we're talking in the range of like 400 milliseconds, uh, especially when you compare to like, you know, I think like things like Monero was like, you know, five, 10 milliseconds or something like that. 400 milliseconds is a very, very long time. But the beauty of Zerocoin is that no matter how many people were burning into Zerocoin, that verification time was constant. So it doesn't grow as more people use it. So that was really good. Uh, because there was no method to hide amounts then, or rather in this proposal, uh, you know, it required the, requ the, the use of fixed denominations, uh, same as in you know, CoinJoin and, and anything that doesn't hide amounts. So you would have to burn in 
0 0.1, 1, 10, 5, or whatever, uh, to avoid standing out. So that was actually a very, very big drawback as it was very cumbersome uh, as well. So there were a couple of challenges to implement ZeroCoin. First of all, you know, it required the trusted setup. And you know, ZeroCoin, ZeroCoin's trusted setup and ZeroCash trusted setup is very, very different. I, if I'm not mistaken, ZeroCoin, all it requires is a very large two prime numbers, uh, you know, multiplied together and you take that big number, that's the trusted setup. So it's a lot more simpler, uh, but there was, no, there was no description of how to actually derive this number in a way that reduces trust, right? Because how can we be certain that we destroyed it, right? And so what, what the zero coin team did or the Z coin team did, which was actually the, the subject of the paper of our founder, Paramin, was actually use uh, certain, use, use the RSA factoring challenge, which was actually in 1991. And what the RSA factoring challenge was, was this competition to kind of see how strong was RSA cryptography? And they, you know, they had like RSA what, 2048, 4096, all this type of stuff. And they basically had a $200,000 bounty to break RSA 2048 and or try to like factor these numbers, right? So um, we, instead of you doing our ceremony, which, you know, that means that we know that we're creating a cryptocurrency, you know, that means there's now incentive to kind of backdoor this, right? Here, we just took something that was done way back in the past. It was a pure academic challenge. They did do certain things to you know, prevent that thing from being withdrawn. But the threat level is very different, right? For example, where in Zcash, you knew that this was going to be created for a cryptocurrency and therefore much, much higher incentives to try to backdoor that ceremony versus like a, a pure academic challenge. Because if you backdoor it, then what's the point of the challenge, right? So we took that. Uh, the cryptographic library that we use actually wasn't very mature, you know, I mean, Parham is just like too excited to implement it, it actually had warnings on it not to use it as is, uh, so we sillyly used it, and actually, you know, zero, the ZeroCoin people is actually written by like some of the top cryptographers, you know, like Ian Mears, you know, Matthew Green, who are very, very respected cryptographers who also were the founding scientists in Zcash, and I guess uh, we kind of respected them, you know, I think they were still very good cryptographers, but we did not challenge the paper as we probably should have with the, the rigor. And that paper didn't have security proofs. It wasn't really described as well. Uh, so yeah, uh, we, we, we made mistakes there. So, uh, you know, this was just like a brief, uh, like showing what did the RSA factoring challenge, how they actually destroyed the, the trusted setup. But uh, yeah, it's not not so relevant. So yeah, we actually have had suffered three attacks on ZeroCoin, uh, some of them which I think can be blamed solely on us, you know, especially when you had only one person, which was, a, you know, in retrospect, obviously a very bad idea. Uh, I think, uh, you know, there was an early implementation for flaw. We missed the equal signs and like, you know, coins were printed out of thin air. So that wasn't good. It was like in December, which was just a couple of months after launch. Uh, that was also on the market, uh, so it's already reflected in our supply. Uh, and the second one was we actually, after that, we realized that, hey, you know, our cryptographic library probably should be looked at by, you know, more experts. And we actually engaged uh, cryptographers to look into it and to try to see if there are any sort of issues with the zero coin library itself. 
Uh, so the guy that we engaged is called Tim Ruffing. I believe he works with Blockstream now. And he actually found a vulnerability that allowed people to actually like intercept your transaction and make it unspendable. So, uh, you know, it's not really like stealing funds or stuff like that, but it was still like very annoying. Like, you know, if I wanted to like burn people's coins. Uh, so that's why that paper is actually called burning zero coins for fun and profit. Right. <laughs> uh, the, the last one, which I kidding was in 2019. Uh, which was a really, really bad uh, cryptographic flaw, which was, you know, overlooked by everyone. You know, the zero coin paper would have been out by 2014 by then, and everyone assumed that it was fine, right? We even engaged cryptographers to look at the protocol, to look at the, the proof, but this was like totally missed out. And uh, a kind of like anonymous hacker actually uh, managed to find a cryptographic flaw in, in the zero coin design. And this was... Uh, a really tough time back then. Zero coin was actually used by quite a lot of projects, uh, Pivx, Veil, and there were a whole lot of Pivx forks as well. So you know it was one of I mean, maybe like the third most used privacy protocol then, and we discovered it because we were attacked first, and we had lots and lots of issues with doing responsible disclosure, and actually that kind of backfired when uh, one of the parties that we disclosed to actually disclosed it early. Uh, resulting in a lot of headaches for other projects as well. So, you know, just to show you that, you know, ZeroCoin was, I guess, for its time, you know, really innovative and actually we had built upon it and improved on the ideas upon it, but this was kind of like the first starting base. And yeah, it's a lot of problems, which is also why we rebranded away from ZCoin. <laughs> So we actually realized that, hey, you know, first of all, we really didn't want the trusted setup, right? Um, you know, this was even when we launched a Zcoin, you know, new of a trusted setup problem in Zerocoin, and we really, really wanted to remove this requirement of trusted setup. You know, it would have been like, you know, a major, major improvement. And um, we actually came across a paper called uh, One Out of Many Proofs by Groff and Booter. Uh, so there's um, some people actually call it Grutter proofs. And this allowed you to actually prove membership um, in a way that was quite efficient. Uh, and basically with Sigma, which is our new privacy protocol, so we actually uh, replaced the zero coin, the R accumulated that required the trust, trusted setup, almost kind of like a drop-in replacement with this new one out of many proof systems, which basically, so you get zero coin, but without trusted setup, with, but with all the other associated issues. Uh, fortunately, when the zero coin flow happened, we were actually already about to launch Sigma. So although the zero coin protocol was actually like, you know, a compromise, I think within three months, we managed to launch uh, Sigma, uh, which we, which was what we were already aiming for all this while, which our kind of also, you know, made us not pay so much attention to zero coin. Uh, but very unfortunate that it happened, like you know, a couple of months before we had transitioned out of zero coin. So yeah, it doesn't suffer the same kind of vulnerabilities with uh, zero coin. And one of the big benefits of zero coin, uh, of Sigma is that actually the proof sizes drop from 25 kilobytes to about like. Two, two to three, one, two kilobytes or so. So it was a huge improvement then. So, you know, I did run through this uh, before. Basically, you know, Sigma pros and cons, no trusted setup, you know, much smaller proofs, uh, you know, still retains the same amount of auditability, auditability as zero coin. Uh, but 
there are still some drawbacks, right? The anonymity set goes up to about like 60,000. Of course, an arbitrary number, but basically, unlike in zero coin where no matter how many like stuff you put in, you know, the verification time stays the same, uh, for one of many proofs, the verification time rises linearly as you put more commitments in. So uh, if, you, if there's like 60,000 commitments and 120,000 commitments, the 120,000 commitments will take two times as long. Uh, but with Sigma, the size of the transaction would only increase logarithmically with the, the size of the membership or so. So again, you know, amounts to expose, it's basically zero coin without trusted setup and smaller proof sizes. And this was deployed in like July 2019 or so. And, you know, this is, I guess, uh, you know, just, just to sort of illustrate the problem with kind of fixed denominations, right? Like, it's actually really inefficient uh, and it also reveals a lot of patterns, right? Because when you don't hide amounts, even if you have this burn and redeem mechanism using ZKP, you know, if you burn like 1,437.5 and then redeem 1,437.5, no matter what your zero knowledge proof says, it's very clear to correlate the two, which is why in all these systems that do not hide amounts, you kind of have to break them into fixed denominations of 0 0.1, 10, 5 or so to kind of like hide in this crowd of pools, right? And uh, so, and that also means that you have a lot of proofs that you need to generate. So instead of generating a single proof for 1,437.5, you have to break it down. Like, let's say if you have some fixed denominations, it's like 1,400, 310. It's like, you know, eight or nine proofs just for a single transaction. And that was like horribly inefficient, no matter how good your ZKP is. So it is a real problem with fixed denominations. And even if you do fixed denominations, if you do like a burn, there is a pattern because you're breaking down your denominations into certain fixed amounts. If you're not careful, you know, and you unshield, uh, you know, those patterns can still emerge. So it's actually a, a big metadata leap. So fixed denominations is bad, right? So I know there are some projects that actually like, you know, don't want to hide amounts like CCX and stuff like that. Uh, but, you know, in return for supply auditability, you have all these issues. So we look back into the problem and we're like, man, you know, this Sigma isn't really cutting it, you know, fixed denominations suck. Uh, and we really, really want to, we really, really want to kind of like, you know, have a more flexible system, right? And basically we took our kind of inspiration from one of many proofs and used it to build a totally new protocol called Lelantis. And actually when we first started this work, we were thinking of like using like uh, ZK snarks, using bulletproofs and stuff like that. We were actually recommended by some Zcash people to say, hey, you know, if you don't, if you really don't like trusted setup, why don't you take a look at this bulletproof, you uh, know, way to do, do zero knowledge. And we tried for a bit and I think after a couple of months, uh, you know, we realized that verification time due to the inefficiencies, uh, it was like taking several seconds to verify a single bulletproof uh, to get the kind of similar anonymity sets. And I believe there was another project that was headed by Dimitri Kovratovich, I think Dusk. And they also tried to, you know, reduce the time of bulletproofs, uh, you know, in this kind of era. 
and well they kind they did optimize it a bit but it was still you know two or three four seconds or so which is obviously very unusable uh as as a transaction currency if you're going to get like you know thousands of transactions every time and so the idea actually is that when we when we realized that we were actually you know really excited and we we're like oh man uh, we are kind of screwed like we don't really have a way to transition to something new uh, but Aram was like, hey, you know, why don't we take a look back at what we did with one of many proofs and see how we can come up with a way that we can burn and redeem coins without using fixed denomination. So that means it's like partial hidden amount. So now instead of breaking it down, I can do 1433.5, burn it, and I can redeem partial amounts now. So previously you couldn't, like with zero coin, you had a burn 10, redeem 10, burn 5, redeem 5. Here you could redeem partial amounts and those amounts were hidden. So this uh, Lelanda's work, I can't really remember the exact date, but we already, I think, were working on it when we launched Sigma, and I think we were live on January 2021. Yeah. So this actually, you know, Lelanda's transact, at least Lelanda's like approach using one of many proofs, I think I can uh, kind of led to more interest in the area. You know, back then everyone was just using you know, ring ring signatures or ring CT and, uh, you know, ZK snark type of constructions. And I think uh, Sarang and a couple of other researchers also were uh, building constructions using one of many proofs such as uh, Triptych and Arcturus, which Triptych was the, I guess, like the previous number one candidate for Monero scaling, uh, which has now been replaced with Seraphis. So yeah, what's the Lelantis pros and cons? You know, obviously it removes the need for fixed denominations, still no trusted setup, still, you know, basic and discrete log assumptions. Uh, and one of the things that was really nice about it, it was pretty efficient uh, because value and membership were actually, you know, kind of like grouped up into one commitment. And still, because we're still using the one of many proof, um, membership proof, the anonymity set was still kind of like restricted by like 60,000 before like verification time became too long. And, but one of the issues that we were trying to solve was like Lelantis, because of the grouping of the way the, the commitments work, it was very hard to actually do security proofs for it. We had security proofs for uh, portions of it. And what, what a security proof is basically like math to prove that, yeah, your stuff is secure. It does what it says. And to actually formalize it is a lot of work, uh, which is why, like, you know, Seraphis for now still doesn't have security proofs. It's a very, very hard work. And although, like, intuitively, maybe practically it might be secure, uh, you know, being like going through so many uh, issues in the past kind of made us scared. And, like, you know, we really, really should try to get the good security proofs if we can. And the other issue is that there was no way or there was no kind of stealth addressing system. There was a way to kind of like, you know, send the right to redeem to someone else. So it's like almost like shielded transactions. But it also meant that, you know, people would have to kind of like uh, give new shielded addresses every time. And we really, really wanted to avoid that. We wanted kind of like a fully holistic system, kind of similar to what Monero has. And yeah, and also we didn't have a multi-sig design. I think that was also why Triptych also probably didn't take off as much as it should. So yeah, you know, after coming like full circle, you know, uh, we finally came up with Lelanta Spark and uh, Aram. 
back then was looking at like you know the constructions in triptych he, he wasn't that familiar with ring ct uh but he saw the way that surround built triptych where the the value and the memberships were separate into separate commitments and he said look you know if we separate it like this it's a lot easier to build kind of a stealth addressing system and i think he thought about it for like a couple of months and he came up with this idea to you know oh, it was like a linking tech construction if i'm not mistaken and we that actually allowed us to have this kind of full full holistic you know uh transaction privacy protocol because now we fully hide you know sender receiver amounts and we had also really really good uh, multi-sig as well which uh, i think is like using a frost implementation that would also hide you know the fact that it was multi-sig and I think uh, Luke, uh, Luke also uh, contributed to a library on that. And I think one of the benefits uh, of um, Spark and, and like Seraphis is because of its modular constructions. And what that means is that you know, all the individual components are kind of like semi-independent. And what that means is like, you know, if we find a new membership proof, we can replace it with something better, which is something we are already actively looking in to get global anonymity sets. And also, it makes security analysis so much easier because you can just uh, sort of um, investigate each component kind of individually. So this is where we are at. We are actually on almost going to be launching testnet maybe in one or two weeks. So that's really exciting. And this probably will be the you know biggest upgrade that we have since then. So the latter spark, you know, we've you know went through. A cryptographic audit, that means the paper has been audited with all the security proofs. We've also done uh, cryptographic library audits. <clears throat> so we're actually quite far on, and we hope to release this uh, maybe in Q3 uh, this year, uh, as in on mainnet. So really exciting, and yeah. So, you know, what's the spot pros and cons? I think we are quite clear to kind of like where we want to be. You know, we have all this complete privacy, still high anonymity, still very basic, well, relatively basic cryptographic con assumptions and constructions. And the flexible addressing is really, really good. Like, you know, you have full incoming, outgoing, and you can also like offload, uh, because like this ZKPs take quite a lot of computational power, but you can offload that to your computer or mobile device, still keeping like spend authority in a, like a low power wallet address. So that's really good. And yeah, security analysis improves much easier. But again, you know, one of the weaknesses is we still don't have that, you know, Zcash construction has, but then work, working towards it, uh, similar kind of approaches that Monero is looking at as well. Uh, this was a work of surround. We were actually looking, you know, because like we were thinking look, as Firo, you know, yes, uh, Monero is like great as currency. And do we really want to be, you know, head on against like Monero and competing in that? Of course, we believe in diversity and freedom. But at the same time, we're like thinking like, hey, you know, maybe we should also be looking at ourselves as supporting confidential assets, uh, which is also similar to what Zano uh, is, is building with uh, quite quite a bit of differences. But the idea is that we're using Spark technology and extending it to Spark assets. That means anyone can create their own asset and enjoy the same privacy uh, as Lelanta Spark. And one of the beauties is that, you know, because we as a smaller project doesn't have the same transaction volume as Monero, 
But if we have an asset ecosystem that is quite vibrant, what it means that every the asset type is also hidden. So that means with every transaction, with every token that is created on this spark asset layer, whether it's a USD coin or a dot coin or whatever, it contributes to the anonymity set of everyone else, including Firo. So a Firo transaction. So even if you touch a dot coin with only like a hundred people, the anonymity set that you gain is actually greater because you're kind of sharing the anonymity set with every other asset, including Firo. Uh, on this thing. So we think it's a great idea. And we have some people that are not connected to us. They are building bridges uh, to, uh, with the idea to kind of like bridge USDC or other stuff into like our spot asset layer, use it privately, and then you can bridge out anything. So we kind of see ourselves as this kind of like privacy layer for that's cheap and like, you know, you're not having compromises there. So yeah, you know, what's the future for Spark? You know, obviously one of the things like the holy grail that we're trying to achieve is uh, global anonymity sets, right? And that would actually allow, uh, you know, efficient verification times regardless of how many, uh, you know, commitments or anon uh, like people are using it. So that's great. And we actually received quite a, quite a big donation from Arcadia. Uh, who gave us like a 200k grant uh, via Magic that's run uh, that you know is a 501c3, uh, and we are using part of that money to kind of further research in the curve tree research area, which I believe uh, maybe Monero is also looking at. So maybe there's uh, some ways that we can collaborate in that area. So yeah, um, there's a lot of lessons learned, right? <laughs> I mean, some of them, you know, in retrospect, are very, very obvious. Uh, you know, sometimes I wish I came from a, a more like, you know, math background and uh, or, you know, my founder kind of like knew more. And I guess like, you know, launching zero coin, Z coin with a two person team if with only one coder was, you know, retrospect, very naive. Uh, of course, you know, it's easy to say that now, but back then we, we didn't really know and as a result suffered for it. And, you know, one of the other things is that, you know, I know like Zcash has got a lot of during like the Sprout disclosure, but you know, when we were trying to deal with our own disclosure and trying to save all these other projects that were using ZeroCoin, we kind of naively assumed that, you know, everyone would play along and be nice uh, and got burned quite badly for that. <laughs> uh, one of the projects actually use it as a marketing star. Like, oh, we found it first and then they disclosed it. We, and then all of that, even though we had disclosed it to them. Uh, and I think like from now on, if we're going to be making any sort of disclosure, especially with the other projects, we're going to get them to sign agreements at least and try to like, you know, lock them down because we, if we discover the bug, I think we should be able to control the flow of information going out. Obviously responsible disclosure, at the end of the day, it has to be, you know, fully transparent of how there's an ongoing threat. There is a certain amount of information withholding that you have to do. Uh, another thing is that, you know, a lot of this uh, stuff, like the audits, you know, a lot of people say, oh, audits, you know, we've done, you know, we, we got an audit from Trail of Bits for, for our Lelantis protocol and still had, uh, had a bad flaw in it. So, you know, audits are not guarantees, I would say it's like, kind of like insurance, but there's no, there's no kind of like, there's no good replacement for, 
for you know doing your proper security proofs, getting you know open source and a large community looking at it, and having several researchers looking at it because. Even if you have one really brilliant researcher, they're going to be biased looking at something they have developed. So uh, that that's really hard. So just don't just don't just uh, blindly trust your audits, right? And obviously, you know, security proofs. You know, if we if we had bothered to try and build security proofs for Zerocoin, maybe we would have you know caught this problem a, a lot earlier. Uh, and you know, I, I'm pretty sure like you know, Seraphis will be also going down that route before deployment on getting. Uh, all those security proofs up or so, which is also why we kind of spend so much time trying to do Spark and stuff like that. And uh, one of the great benefits is that because now Seraphis and Spark have certain shared elements and ideas, uh, you know, we have benefited from, I think, two disclosures, one from Nicholas, uh, God, I don't know how to pronounce it, Krasnus or something, something, sorry, I'm <laughs> House. Um, well, uh, you, you know who he is, and the other guy uh, was uh, Luke Parker, uh, Kayabanov, who also disclosed another vulnerability. So, uh, although you know we're now kind of like slightly diver diverging, the constructions are kind of like changing now. Uh, but you know, there's still some shared elements that we can collaborative work on and benefit from joint disclosures. So, yeah, I. So one of the other things that we kind of learned is that, you know, we were always looking to other projects for inspiration. And sometimes, you know, like Monero also was like, you know, kind of like the gold standard for privacy and decentralization. But we also have to realize as a smaller coin in a different kind of life cycle, uh, things that we, if we were trying to emulate Monero completely, it would completely wreck and, and, and destroy us, right? Um, which I guess I'll talk on the next slide. So yeah, you know, these were some of the challenges that we faced as a project. You know, our co-founder uh, ran away with all our seed money. I think like one month after launch, <laughs> uh, we had also a malicious seed investor that, yeah, basically you know wanted to turn us into a Ponzi scheme. But then uh, when we refused as the community, you know, we were rage dumped upon. And I think that's kind of like testament to kind of like the pros and cons of getting funding from people, right? Uh, we also were very, very big uh, proponents of proof of work. And we, we spent way too much time trying to get like an egalitarian proof of work protocol. So we even came out of our own uh, proof of work algorithm called MTP. We, we should have been just focusing on privacy. And then we later moved to, to, to ProPAL, but we still got 51% attack. And our miners, you know, I think Monero is kind of lucky that maybe the miners are kind of aligned, but most GPU miners are unfortunately like mercenary, right? I think it's also something that Oxen also faced as well. And many other smaller coins, even though they may not want to admit it publicly, if we were just purely proof of work, we would just get raped no matter how much the subsidy is. So, you know, I believe proof of work has its place, you know, having like a permissionless way to get coins and stuff like that. But I feel that miners today, especially the GPU miners, are much less concerned with the project, but more on the dollar value that they'll be getting. And if you realize that, then it's like, is this a community that you want in our project, right? So, uh, you know, we've tried to reach out to them, you know, one of, uh, like, we are a hybrid proof of work, proof of, uh, uh, like, a hybrid masternode and proof of work consensus. And 
90%, of the hash rate is on two miners. And, you know, we tried so hard to even tell them, could you up your fees a bit and whatnot? And they refused. And we even used some of our funds to actually subsidize miners who to mine on other pools. It was like a 10, 15% bonus. And miners still refused to, to switch mainly because they were lazy and not keeping track of the project, right? So, yeah, you know, I know a lot of people here are like, you know, pure proof of work, uh, you know, uh, advocates, but as a smaller project, um, you know, there are realities that we cannot replicate with thing. And I feel that this may sound kind of bad, but like being focused on CPU mining for, for Monero kind of works because, you know, a lot of these people run botnets and botnets also run ransomware and ransomware people like Monero. So there's like a natural symbiosis, right? So, <laughs> so like the miners are also incentivized to work in the best interest of uh, Monero. So I think that's interesting, um, maybe a bit, I guess, controversial, but, but that, that's, my, that's my take. <laughs> so yeah, the other thing is like, you know, the idea of death tax, uh, the idea of like a pre-mine and stuff like that. Like for a project of our size, I know we're like only like 25 million market cap, uh, although we're like listed on like major exchanges like Binance, Huobi and all of that. It's really tough to kind of compete in this environment. Monero kind of existed in a vacuum of good altcoins or good privacy coins. And a lot of the exchanges were then like grandfathered in and had the adoption. So I think Monero has a lot of advantages there. So if we were to kind of start like no death tax, no other thing, we would not be able to put out the amount of good work that we have today. And obviously we realize there's a centralization risk, you know, that's why we created community funds that are not run by the core team. Uh, and we've also actually now like, we are kind of like 50% kind of funded by donations and 50% uh, based off the, our uh, death reward. So yeah, I mean, like we don't get a lot of money. We get about like 16,000 euro a month, which Right now it's like 30 plus thousand and we're like subsidized by donations and stuff like that. So if you realize you have developers, cryptographers and putting out all this great work, it's not cheap. Yeah. Do you love coffee and Monero as much as we do? Consider making gratuitous.org your daily cup. Pay with Monero for premium fresh beans and if you like what you taste, send a digital cash tip directly to the Guatemalan farmers that made it possible. Proceeds help us grow this channel, Gratuitous, and Monero. Uh, and just very quickly to kind of, you know, touch on some other cool stuff that we did. Uh, you know, we've also built out, uh, not built out, we, we created this privacy-preserving uh, voting protocol that was actually kind of inspired by our work with Spark and it allows people to vote anonymously but still verify that uh, you know it has not it's been counted it's been tallied it's been also uh, you know correctly counted and not modified while also requiring very minimal trust requirements with the election organizers so the election organizers can't like collude and stuff like that so that's at the paper stage uh, you know we're trying to get funding to see if we can build something out uh, and the other thing that was really cool was uh, because Paramin actually, uh, prior to joining Zcoin, he was actually serving in the Thai Cyber Warfare Army unit. And uh, because of his connections, uh, the Thai Democrat Party actually ran its primary elections on our blockchain 
because the stakeholders then all didn't trust each other. They wanted e-voting, but they thought blockchain would solve the issue and about 127,000 votes were cast. So yeah. Great. Thank you, Ruben. So yeah. Um, we're at time, so we'll do some questions before the sure. next uh, presentation. Um, you covered a couple of things that Fear was focusing on. That you said private transactions, of course. I think is that your main goal? Yeah, private transactions, private assets. I would say. Yeah. Okay, private transactions, private assets. You have voting on the blockchain. Yeah, so, uh, voting on the blockchain will be a separate thing, but we we did do it, but. I don't think that's our focus. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So just a lot of things going on. Yeah. What would you say is your mission statement? What What is Firo trying to achieve? I personally actually want like Firo to be kind of like the privacy infrastructure for for cryptocurrencies, where anyone can bridge and just like live in the spot asset layer and do everything private. If they want to go back to their or, or original chain, they can always bridge out. Well, of course, originally, you know, like I see Firo. Of course, you know, I still see it as a currency. Uh, but it is a competitive environment. But you know, deep down inside, I really hope that Firo takes off as a currency, and there are quite cool ways to spend Firo today. Like I paid for my trip here using Firo, so great. <laughs> so, would you say that there are different projects that do, um, for example, private transactions better than Firo? They do uh, NFTs better than Firo. Would that be accurate? Uh, better than Firo? But... Sure. Yes. Like individual projects that. Uh, focus on a certain property uh, of Firo. Yes, so we would also support NFTs on Spark assets and stuff like that, but the idea is that we're complementing the system rather than saying, oh, we're going to replace Bitcoin, we're going to replace Monero, right? We see ourselves as this, you know, infrastructure layer where people can transact privacy without having to worry all the technicalities. Obviously, there are still issues with bridging and stuff like that, uh, but we're working on it. Um, can you talk a bit about the design choices of Firo? For example, um, opt-in versus default privacy. Sure. Um, you mentioned the uh, the dev tax, uh, or, or the yeah, you do have a dev tax. Mm -hmm. you, you don't have a pre-mine. Yes, no. Yeah. Um, just talk a bit about that. Sure. Uh, wait, the first question was why you chose. Okay, so I am very big on privacy by default, but when we started zero coin was designed to work with transparent addresses, right? So there was no way for us to go like, oh, zero coin by you know, default. It's just wasn't really easy to do it that way. And also the technology and the performance characteristics were just not good enough. Obviously, I think what we, once we have Spark and kind of like a Spark address, like stealth addressing system, then we can move towards like, you know, a full uh, default on mandatory privacy. But currently our focus is to have all our official wallets, everything to be focused on Spark addresses, right? That means, uh, you know, we kind of abstract away the transparent layer, but then, you know, for exchanges, they can keep their transparent layer, but we're trying to convince a few of them to allow uh, withdrawers to Spark addresses and whatnot. Eventually, you know, like, if I could do whatever I want without caring about the repercussions, you know, obviously I would say like, yeah, I'll just move spot addresses, mandatory, take that shit, right? But realistically, uh, I would think that probably a lot of exchanges might delist this. And no matter how good your intentions are, that's the end of the project, right? Like, yeah, okay, now I can't do anything at all. So we are trying to adopt a phased approach. And uh, hopefully we will get there, but hopefully with stuff like, you know, spot assets and stuff like that, that anonymity set will be growing a lot higher. Yeah. 
What's the daily transaction rate for Fira? Only like a couple of thousand transactions a day. So no, no way near Monero, uh, but, but yeah. <laughs> so when you mentioned the anonymity set that you're going to achieve with Lelantis, uh, mm -hmm. you, I think I saw 30 to 60,000. 65,000, yeah. 65,000. Mm -hmm. So you obviously need, you know, many more users than that to um, actually make use of that anonymity. Correct. Set. I mean, like, obviously we can build whatever we want theoretically and get all of that, right? And the idea as just focusing as a financial currency thing, obviously, uh, you know, Monero already occupies that role, which is why we are moving towards assets to hope to kind of get that additional anonymity. So, I mean, like, even right now with Lelantis, Although we don't have like you know that many users, like maybe a couple of thousand or so, um, you know we've already hit like anonymity sets of like I don't know, like 120 over thousand with, because we're sliding. I don't want to go into that, but basically we've had quite quite a lot of transaction volume to fill those sets already. Yeah. So the technical aspect of it, the um, anonymity set is interesting academically, mm -hmm. but uh, from a practical standpoint, what it sounds to me like for a smaller privacy project, mm -hmm. the main focus is getting more users. Correct, yes. So how do you plan to approach that? So, I mean, that was why we are approaching the asset layer to allow people to bridge in and use us as that. Also, like, you know, looking like, I know more dinners and all the ordinals are all really like um, controversial, right? But we design it like this is actually meant for it, and we design it in a way that will not compromise privacy for the rest. Uh, you know, we're hoping that, like, you know, one of the things that we forget about crypto, especially as privacy coins, is that we are tin hat for our government's going to get us and all of that. And sure, I get that, but we also have to realize it's fun, right? So uh, I'm not against NFTs, especially if it doesn't compromise the privacy of thing, and we hope to be able to bridge. So we have this like little game to kind of like bridge, uh, like NFT. But I wouldn't call them anything. It's always a multi-pronged approach, but it's very centered around the the idea that people would want to create assets or would want to create like a voting thing on uh, Spark assets as well, and that would increase the anonymity set and that kind of like virtuous loop, right? To get more people using it, not necessarily as a currency, but everything else. Yeah. Great. I hope the NFTs work out. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, final question before I open it up to the audience. Uh, Firo has master notes. Right. How do master notes fit with your mission? Right. So back then when we implemented master notes in 2017, you know, you also realized that what was available then, right? Um, so there's the PC version and the not so PC version. So I'm going to just share both. Uh, actually, the founder, Paramin, wanted to remain pure proof of work. Uh, and you know, this is, but because the investor that came in, because remember our seed money was kind of decimated, right? And back then, you know, master was was the hot thing. And, uh, yeah, so that was why it was implemented then. Right. So now it actually, actually plays a very important role in our security because now obviously our hash rate isn't, we have been 51% attacked before. But the master nodes play a role in kind of uh, they will sign the block to prevent any re-op after that. So it's kind of like master node security. If the master nodes somehow get compromised or get taken offline, then a Nakamoto consensus takes over. So that has allowed us to kind of get like you know single block finality and stuff like that. But I don't see master nodes as 
the way to go forever. I personally don't like the, the requirement of a certain fixed collateral. I don't like the requirement that we have to host, you know, a VPS somewhere with a fixed IP address. Uh, and we are looking at other consensus mechanisms, but I think it would be unlikely to go to pure proof of work just because we had so much experience dealing with this uh, as, as a project of our size. And I think that whatever it is, I would like to always retain some proof of work element to re retain that permissionless thing, but I don't think it would survive on its own. Yeah. So you have a plan for phasing out master nodes? Yes, uh, we have a plan of phasing out. Of course, we are looking at you know, the, the, the Cerberus, you know, Radix type of stuff, but it's still early on because we are a small and we're like, let's fix privacy first. Thank you very much. Any other questions from the audience? Thank you for an interesting speech. It was really interesting to see the challenges that you have. I really feel your pain <laughs> being there. So my question is about confidential assets. This is a really challenging technology and I'm curious, how you see the future of this technology? Because it's opened, definitely it opens new chapter in the privacy chains. Right. And uh, how you see the future? Are you planning to implement something like a virtual machine or something like a DeFi tools or how you see this? Thank you. I think that's a hard question, especially, you know, when you're talking about EVM compatibility and all of that. I know like Beam has done something. I, I haven't dived into the details of that. But I, I would caution, especially as we are privacy, to, privacy coins and all of that, doing stuff on like, you know, private DeFi may not be what you want because then when you get robbed, you don't really know what you're getting robbed, right? And so uh, I feel that, you know, there's all this talk about private DeFi and of course I applaud efforts to go down that route, but I don't think Firo wants to go fully down that like full programmability route. I think if anything, uh, we are looking at ways to make it easier to, you know, we may have some additional scripting abilities that will make it easier for other stuff to bridge over because we want that process as seamless as possible. But I would have to admit that's still a work in progress. But uh, if you talk about like, like, okay, my opinion of DeFi is that it is really important, but there are only very few things that are really valuable. And one of it, which is AMMs, which are great. And the other one are landing protocols, right? Everything else, yeah, maybe, you know, but these are like the two major building components that I think are important. Maybe I'm, I'm uneducated in anything, but you know, <laughs> this is what I, I see. And I'm trying to see that if I can reduce that attack surface, uh, then great, but uh, it's still a work in progress. Any other questions? Thank you, Ruben. Thank you.